Well, I don't know about you guys, but that was good, right? I don't do this a lot, but, and I didn't do this last hour, but I just feel moved. That man right there, that is a great pastor. And I mean, he hates when I do this, but you know, at times we can get roles confused and people think Derek's primary role is just to sing. And it's not. Uh, that man creates a worship atmosphere in here because that's what God's gifted him to do. And he ushers us into a place where the word can penetrate our hearts. That's part of what God's designed that man to do. And so what is so cool each and every week is to hear the way he does that, not just through song, not just through the arrangement, not just through those things, but the way that he speaks the truth as well as sings it. And so I'm never bummed out when he takes the time to take pastoral moments to guide our hearts in worship. But I am blessed, not just here on Sundays, but between the Sundays of just his heart and his desire to love you guys in that way. So um, anyway, I just want to take a minute to affirm my dear friend, but love you, dude. Um, okay. Fallproof is the series we're in. Uh, Jamie set this up beautifully. Uh, week one, he came in, and let's just read the verse. We'll throw it up here real quick, but this is where we're going. It's talking about having escaped from the corruption that is the world because of sinful desire, and then it goes into this, and it says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and so on and so forth. Now, this is beautiful, and the way Jamie set it up was week one, he gave us this umbrella principle of the fact that when we go into, there's an audacious claim at the end of this verse. It says, if you do these things, or if you add these things, you'll never fall. That's an audacious claim. Do we understand that, church? So as we sit back and we look at this, when the Bible makes audacious claims, we should pay close attention, because it's not lying, okay? It's very serious about what it looks like for us to do these things and secure our faith or to, in essence, protect or bunker ourselves in in our faith. So we are supplementing our faith, and today we're going to talk about virtue. Now, here was my super fun week. Our senior pastor looked at us and said, hey, Daryl's up, so you got a guest speaker in the worship center, which means you guys can preach. It's like, great. So um, I love to encourage you guys from the word, and so I, I took the opportunity to do that. So as we're sitting there... I go, great, what word are we on? Virtue. And he goes, oh, wait a minute, virtue. That's arate. I think that's the same word that I did in the attitude series. It's excellence. To which I went, this is, and then he went, great, I'm off to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, good luck with that. Where you're just like, Dude, talk about the ultimate thunder stealing. You just preached a sermon on this word like two years ago. So it was like, all right, so what do we do with that? But here's where Jamie left us a, a year or two ago when he preached in the Attitude Series. He, he said this, and this is his main point. He said, as we are biblically guided, combined with being spirit-empowered, we think excellence. Now, I want to build on that today, and I want to walk that out a little bit, not just into how we think excellence, but to go further and say, once, once we are thinking excellence or virtuous, because it's the same word, arete is both excellence in Philippians 4 as well as uh, virtue in our passage in 2 Peter today. So as we look at those things, we've got to understand Jamie was driving us at Christ-like think, Christ thinking, which leads to Christ-like Christ -like acting. So that's where I want to kind of camp today. Now, this is a cool distinction. The Greek culture in the first and second century when the word of God is being penned through the apostles uh, in the New Testament, 
they use this word all the time. The Greeks were real jacked up on themselves and, and in their defense for good reason. It was sort of the apex of human existence at that point. This is the culture that produced incredible philosophers and thinkers, just like Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, men we still look back at and sort of marvel at what they were thinking and doing at that time. So what I want us to see is that though the Greek culture was, they thought everything they did was arete. We are virtuous. We are excellent. Everything. The scriptures use this word very sparingly. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, only uses the word six times. And it uses the word only, exclusively, to talk about God. In the Greek New Testament, what we translate into the English version of the New Testament, it uses the word very little. And what it looks like there is it's, again, it's either talking about God or his character traits through his people, just like today. When Peter says, supplement your faith with virtue, again, it's talking about a godly characteristic. And all that we're driving at today is what does it look like for this to kind of play out through us, for us to be virtuous or excellent. And you've got to ask a question at this point. Why pursue virtue? I mean, really, like, you go, okay, self-control, I can see that. It keeps me from getting fat. That's a wonderful thing to pursue. I don't want to be fat. I can see why self-control is a great thing. And yet you go, excellence, what virtue, what does that look like? Well, two things, and I want us to see this as foundational for where we're going today. One is God knows what's best for you. Okay, I camp back on this theory a lot, and here's what it is. God has designed you, so he has wired you and designed you in such a way that his things will satiate your soul. That's important to understand. So when uh, God's holy word says, pursue virtue or supplement your faith with virtue, what God knows is that Psalm 37, four is true. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will, say it with me, give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't say once you get the desires of your heart, you'll be delighted in the Lord. No, that order of operation is important there. It's once you've delighted yourself in the Lord, his things will become delightful to you. That's how we get mixed up in culture all the time. And so the reality is, God knows if you pursue virtue, you will be deeply satiated in your soul. This thing is good for you. Number two reason. When we act virtuous, when we reflect God's character, you have to remember that you are reflecting God to the culture and the world around you. You may be the only reflection of Christ that somebody sees during their time here on earth. So when you act in a virtuous way, remember, in a lot of ways, that is very contradictory to the way that culture is operating at the time. So we are God's reflection of his character to the world around us. But what happens sometimes, and this is a distinction I want to make today, we come in and we try to do a godly thing in a worldly way. And when we try to do a godly thing or to reflect God's character in a worldly way, we will always be disappointed. We will always be heartbroken. We will always feel hopeless because what ends up happening is we sit back and we go, I'm trying to do it and I'm following all the steps and I read the books. And so I'm doing this pursuit of excellence or virtue based on what the world says because God told me to do it, but I'm doing it the world's way. That is heartbreaking. How many of you have ever done something? How many of you, this is resonating right now, and you go, oh my gosh, that's what I'm doing. We got to flip the script on that, and we have to distinguish between worldly virtue and godly virtue, and I want to help us do that right now. 
Okay, the first thing that we see is that for the world, virtue is a destination. And here's what I mean by that. The world sits back and they say, okay, I got to be virtuous. I got to go. I got to get to virtue or excellence so that someday I can stand back and everyone will look at me and say, what a virtuous man or woman. Wow, he he has established an incredible level of excellence in his life. Look at him. It's a place they have to go. But for the believer... For the believer, virtue is a destiny. There's a difference. Here's what I mean by that. If Revelation 21 has anything to say about your life, here's what it will look like someday. The old heaven, the old earth, they will pass away and the sea will be no more because God has created a new heaven and a new earth. And tears and mourning and death will exist no more. And you will stand virtuous in a glorified existence with your Lord and Savior, virtue is your destiny. What we are doing as believers here today is unbelievable. When we pursue virtue, when we act in a virtuous way, we are ushering a kingdom character trait onto the earth. It is his kingdom come. We are the stewards of God's character down here. He is reflecting his character through us. You cannot miss that because if your destiny is to land somewhere, what you start to operate in before you reach that destiny is a reflection of God to the world around you. Do you see how that makes so much sense? Each and every one of these things, they were not random. Peter wasn't just sitting down going, well, that sounds pretty good. Let's just throw virtue in there because everybody likes virtue. No, no, no. It's God's character to the world around you and you are the reflection. You are fulfilling your destiny as a believer. Now, most of this sermon today is going to be application to our lives. It's that once we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit at conversion, and we have experienced that, now we are thinking Christ-like, and that Christ-like thinking starts to produce excellent or virtuous thinking, and now we have to sit back and ask, what does it look like to be virtuous in the society around us? That's hard to do. And I've got four things that I want us to look at today. I want us to look at what does it look like to be virtuously loving, to pursue pursue virtuous understanding, virtuous discernment, and how to have virtuous unity. I think if these are four things that we can pursue with virtue, our culture is in desperate, desperate need of these things right now. The, The first of these is virtuous love. The passage for this is John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's a lot, right? That's a lot to think about. We love this passage every time when I stand up here and we do communion. I stand up and I say, uh, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Well, why do we have a new covenant? Why do we, because there's also with the new covenant, there's a new command. And that new command is that now that the law has been fulfilled in Christ, there is a new command and that new command is to love one another. It's really tough when we look at the world around us, but this is the call on the Christian life. It is a direct call from Christ that we are to, we are called to go give away the love that we have experienced in him. I was talking to a Christian couple recently and they had made a decision to uh, go to uh, the ceremony of a same-sex couple. 
And I could, last hour, when I said that, I could feel the room go, this is really culturally tough. This is a hot topic right now. And, and we sat down and I, I talked to this couple and I listened to their hearts. And they said, what's gone on is that we've come to a place where we have decided to love this couple right where they are and we have a longer version and a longer view for God's sanctification and purpose in their life than we do this moment. So we are going to support those two individuals knowing that there will be people who will have a problem with this. You know what the response from the couple was? They said, we know what you believe. We know what you think about how we live and we're not saying we're gonna change and you are, you are loving us anyway. You know what the question from them was? Why do you love us like this? Welcome to earning the right to virtuously love. Because if you love virtuously, you will love beyond your comfort zone. If you love with excellence or you love with virtue, you will love beyond what you and your friends in church are comfortable with. Because you are following after not an earthly example of love, but a heavenly example of love. And you look at your Savior, Jesus Christ, who walked the earth, and when he loved extravagantly, people called him a drunkard. People called him a glutton. Not because he was drunk or gluttonous, but because he was guilty by association. And the church at the time looked at him and said, he does not fit our mold. And he said, I know but your mold is not loving the world very well. And I want to. I want to virtuously love. Virtuous love does this. Virtuous love shows love to others at the cost of the one offering the love and to the glory of God the Father. That is virtuous love. Love, in a virtuous way, does not look for agreement. That's how you look at a couple who you don't agree with their lifestyle, but you love them where they are. Because who changes human hearts? Humans? Nope. God does. And when you reflect God's virtuous love into the lives of others, it keeps that door open. You earn the ability to do long-term relationship with them and continue to show them that God's love goes way beyond your sin. I'm going to submit to you, no one has ever been corrected into the kingdom. They've been loved into the kingdom. And each and every one of you right now are sitting back going, yeah, I know. But the reality is the love of Christ goes beyond what you're thinking. It will cost you to love virtuously to the benefit of others and to the glory of God the Father. Virtuous understanding. This is a great verse, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is a tough one, gang. This is a really tough verse for us to wrestle with right now. Here's why. Our world is so divided. We are divided politically. We are divided racially. We are divided spiritually. And it is so tough right now for us to wrap our heads around some of the things that are going on. Just spend two minutes on your Facebook page and start scrolling. And just go, my goodness. Like, we are so divided across uh, the deal. And I told my wife recently, I said, I think I'm done with Facebook. And she's like, seriously? And I said, yeah, like everybody's just mad. Like, I don't need that. I get enough of that. Just watching the news. Everybody's mad. And the only reason I'm sticking in there is I get to hear the hearts of others in my life. But here's what I don't get to hear. I don't get to hear their tone when they say something on Facebook. 
I don't get to hear the relationships that they have in their lives that are informing that post. I don't get to hear where they've been hurt in the past or the difficult things that are going on in their life. I don't get to hear any of those things. And the biggest problem in our culture right now is that everyone is talking and no one is listening anymore. Listening is a lost art. Listening in our culture today means being quiet while you craft your argument against this person you do not agree with. That's what listening means. No one would ever sit back anymore and go, you know what, I'm going to genuinely listen to this person, even though I might have this experience. They may get done talking and go, so what do you have to say for yourself? And I go, huh, you know, I'd never thought of that point you just made, which is going to grind on you a little bit. That's going to cost you to be virtuously understanding. But virtuous understanding goes beyond listening while crafting your own point. Virtuous understanding listens to the heart of the person in front of you so that you can change the way you think about them. You wanna change your Facebook experience? Every time you read a hostile post on Facebook, go ahead and ask this question. What felt need is not being met or what hurt is fueling this post? That'll change some stuff. That might alter the way you look at how this person's responding because the reality is virtuous understanding is not aimed at agreement. It is aimed at finding that place where that person is hurting and finding out how you can love them. The reality is virtuous understanding listens and doesn't just listen, but listens like Christ listens. It listens to the hurt and the needs of others and goes hard to care for the person, whether you agree with them or not. You see, if you want to virtuously love the world, you have to virtuously understand the world to sit back and try to understand where they're coming from so that you can then go extravagantly at caring for them in the midst of their hurt. But that's hard. That cost us. The next one would be virtuous discernment. I love this passage, and I think it has so much to, to say about us today and where we are. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. This is the Apostle Paul talking. That I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though myself, though not, my, not, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those, who, uh, those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that, uh, that by all means I might save some. Man, this is so good. But what Paul is describing here requires radical, virtuous discernment. Paul sat back and he looked at the culture around him. He looked at the world and then he let go of it. And he said, okay, uh, I'm done. Paul never sat back and went, I'm going to try and change the culture. Do you know why? Because culture is a worldly thing. Culture is a reflection of the people who are in it. Paul let go of something that was a reflection. It's an atmospheric fragrant thing that comes off of the people who are in it. He went, you know what? I'm not doing that. So when Paul rolled into Rome, when he rolled into these places, he didn't go, if I don't get a meeting with the emperor, I can't do anything. He didn't do that. 
He sat back and he went to the synagogues and he reasoned and he talked, he listened, he discerned what was going on so that he could understand what the needs were. And then he started loving people virtuously and extravagantly. Paul had so many life experiences. He just dumped his entire toolbox on the table and went, what do I have that can help win? Not all, not that's going to save the world, but that I could just save some. I'm not interested in the culture. I want to save souls for Christ because that's what most is, is most important. And I'm not going to get them all. I just want to try and save some. So he sits back and he says, all right, to the Jew, I got you. You see what I did there? He says, I got that. You're Jewish? I got Jewish? Matter of fact, I don't just have Jewish. I was born into the tribe of Benjamin, given the name of our first king of Judaism. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was trained at the, at the feet of the absolute best scholars in Judaism. Zealous? You think you're zealous as a Jew? I was killing Christians. I was that zealous. And, and now, let me show you something different. Because I was the Jew among Jews. I was the best there is. Actually, the hope in a lot of ways. A young leader in the Jewish community, they hoped highly for me in Judaism. And yet, I have walked away. You see, I was under the law, but I have found something different. And by the way, when he went through that list, any Jew he sat in front of would have gone, whoa, bro. For real? You did all that? And he went, yeah, and guess what? I call it rubbish now. There's a new thing. Let me tell you about my new thing that has captivated my heart. Where my Judaism fell short, I now have Christ. To the Gentile, he says, oh, you are outside of the law. Guess what? So am I. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm under the law of Christ. And let me tell you what it's done to satiate my heart. Oh, you, you are weak. You're belittled. You're impoverished. Let me tell you what's happened to me. Because I have forsaken everything, a law of promise and prowess. I left it all behind. Now I am homeless. I've been imprisoned. I've been shipwrecked. I have nothing. I'm just like you. Paul took the entirety of his life. And this is what I want you to do, church. I want you to take everything you have, that job you think that didn't matter, like everything that you've got from your education to your, your sin life to all these things and, and dump it on the table and then watch God use it because he doesn't waste anything. I was a car salesman. God can't use car salesmen. But guess what? When I sit down and I'm talking to a teenager about what's going on in his life, guess what? I'm selling Jesus. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, I am diving in and going, listen, this is where Christ is the answer. But guess what? Being persuasive with the beautiful relationship of Christ and showing it for fullness is storytelling. And God didn't waste my time in the car business. God didn't waste my broken places. My biggest messes have become my biggest message. Why? Because God wastes nothing. And when you empty your toolbox, he will use you. But you have to discern the needs of others to understand them, to love them. It is a flow of virtue in our lives to understand these things and use them in excellence. The point is this. The point is that Paul was discerning enough to let go of the culture and by any means necessary, relate to those around him that he would love just some. Church, if you got serious about, you know what? I'm not going to try and change the culture. I'm just going to love those who are in front of me. We would be unstoppable. If you sat back and started listening to those in your life, look out. 
And if you started loving beyond your comfort zone, I'm not, church, I'm not kidding. Even the contents of this room could change our city. I mean, it would be an amazing thing. And last point, virtuous unity. For this, we go to Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace. Can we say that again real quick? Everyone say that with me. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. I could preach for a day and a half on the richness of what's going on in this verse. But here's what it looks like. I talked to you guys a couple weeks back. We have a small, actually it's a class right now that's meeting right now at 11 o'clock. It's called Oneness Embraced. The entire class is designed at racial reconciliation and racial understanding. Bringing black brothers and sisters in Christ, white brothers and sisters in Christ together to be able to hear from each other and ask dumb questions, because I have dumb questions. And I've started attending the class. I can't today because I'm here with you guys, but the last two weeks I've been in there just asking questions and listening, okay? I, I stopped talking and I started listening. And what I heard is they're taking uh, the entire class through some wonderful material by Tony Evans. And Tony Evans draws this distinction. This, this amazing pastor says this. He says, sameness and unity are not the same thing. And I was like, boy, I wonder where he's going with this. Sameness says you, are, you, are, you look like me, you believe like me, you speak like me, you say all the same things as me. You do all those things. And so, therefore, we can be in agreement, and that's okay. The problem with that is that Christ saw to it that we are not the same. I, I said sameness is a mirage. It's, it, it, it does not exist. Every single person in this room, I could sit down, no matter how much you think we are alike, and we will find things that we could vehemently disagree about. Some of you are going, yeah, you've said some of them this morning. But the reality is we're not the same. God saw fit to that. There are Christians all over the world who are acting and thinking and behaving in ways that would make you uncomfortable because of their culture and how they are having to work to embrace and to engage in that culture to have an impact to win some for Christ. That's happening all over the world today. And so when we look at the difference between sameness and unity, we have to recognize we're not called to sameness. And church, it's a mirage. I mean, Scott still gives us a weird little blink of there's a lot of sameness around here. We all feel pretty comfortable. We're very similar. Once you go deep, which is I'm going to argue why some of us don't want to, you're going to find that we're not the same. And that's okay. Because to be unified is to stand next to someone who is radically different than you, potentially who you do not agree with, and say we have Christ in common. And the best example of this I've ever heard, Pastor Evans opened up right after that. And he said, on this earth, there is a condiment that is a gift from God. And he said, it's mayonnaise. Now, I tend to agree with him, okay? I love mayonnaise. When you start making sauces out of mayonnaise or you go to aioli's, which is just fancy mayonnaise, it's all good. And I love that stuff. But he said, listen, mayonnaise is made out of two things that do not agree. They are not the same, oil and water. 
He said, when you put oil and water together, you can blend them up for as long as you want. The second that motion stops, oil and water separate. And he said, but something funny happens when you add a third entity. When you add eggs, you get mayonnaise. And you, you emulsify the, two, the three together and the eggs start to bring oil and water together. And now it is indiscernible. They are indivisible as to where the water and the oil once were because the eggs have brought them together. And he said Ephesians 2 is the same way. Ephesians 2 is a racial issue. Jew and Gentile, who, by the way, have been at odds forever. Many of the Gentiles had Babylonian or Assyrian heritage. Guess what the Babylonians did? They carted all the Jews off to Babylon and used them as slaves. Might that apply today? They were hating each other for thousands of years. This goes back to Abraham's day as he's coming into the promised land and just laying stuff left and right. They are hating each other. And yet Paul is speaking into that very context with a huge impact saying, there is no longer two men. A third entity has been added to you too. And there is now one man in Christ where there was once two because this third entity is the blood of Jesus. And you are emulsified in the body of Christ. It is no longer discernible to God where oil and water once were because the eggs of the body is the blood of Jesus. And you now stand unified in Christ. You see, the reality is so perfect for us today. We cannot overstress this point enough. Jamie talked on unity a little bit ago. What did he say? I can't overstress this enough. But the path to unity will make you uncomfortable. Because the path to unity will not have sameness on it. What it will have is an earth-shattering move into places that will make you uncomfortable because you follow a pathway to virtuous love that doesn't operate in sameness. I sit back all the time. And now, because of where our world is politically, I have brothers and sisters in Christ who come to me and they go, yeah, no, I, have a, I, I am a Democrat and you are not. So what do we do here? And you know what I do? I stop talking and I start listening, even though it's really hard sometimes. I start listening. And you know what I, what I get when I listen? I understand better where they're coming from. Do you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't change my views. We don't agree, but we have unity because we've been emulsified in the body of Christ. We are unified in his blood. And I sit back and go, even though we don't agree, we are unified. The church is splintering off into all of these meaningless little denominations. And they can't sustain themselves. And at some point, the world's going to come kicking our door down and they're not going to have to kick very hard because there's not a lot of unity in the church. We got churches all over this city that our doctrinal statements are almost exactly the same and we don't like them. <laughs> oh, you go where? Oh, okay, good. Oh, I saw that sticker on their car. That's not an SBC sticker. We're not going to go to lunch with them. You believe the same thing. <laughs> and I think in the generations to come, we're going to have to start changing that. Worship nights that include a bunch of different churches. Sitting back and doing missions in our city, asking questions that say, not what does our church need, but what does our city need? <laughs> so we can come together across boundary lines, even denominational ones, and say, we are in agreement that Christ is our Lord and Savior, and we are going to virtuously love our city. That's amazing. That's what only Christ can do. 
I want to close with this. I am reading a bunch of Christian history right now for a class in seminary, and I'm really loving it because uh, looking at our past shows me in some ways how far we have strayed from some of these unification uh, areas and how much we enjoy today that the church in its roots does not. The reality is uh, first and second century, it was ugly. (laughs) It was really ugly for the church. Christianity was an upstart. It was seen as uh, heresy. Christians were viewed as atheists because they didn't enjoy the pantheon and they didn't worship the emperor. They said, you don't have a physical God like we have. And these early Christian apologists had to sit and reason and argue with the culture that said, you are this way and you are that way. A really great author who I'm reading right now, uh, Justo Gonzalez, is an early Christian historian. And this is what he says about these apologists, these men with great minds that had to come in and reason with these guys. He says, the writings of the apologists witness to the tensions in which early Christians lived. While rejecting paganism, they had to deal with the valuable elements in the culture it had produced. While accepting the truth to be found in the philosophers, they insisted on the uh, superiority of Christian revelation. While refusing to worship the emperor, emperor, and even while persecuted by his authorities, they continued praying for the emperor and admiring the greatness of the Roman Empire. Is this how we live? Do we sit back in places where people don't agree and pray for them? Do we sit back as whatever your political persuasion is and pray for our leader while admiring America in some of the ways where it's still great? Is that what we live in, Christians? This is a second century document that they've unearthed, and it beautifully describes what's going on in the second century and third and fourth as well, is that Christians are being wrapped in the furs of beasts, thrown into the Colosseum, and eaten by lions, simply because they would not deny Christ. Christians are being wadded up, covered in tar, stuck onto stakes, and set ablaze, just to light and illuminate the gardens of Nero, one of the great persecutors of the second century. This is what's going on in Christianity, and while it's going on, this is what an early Christian apologist writes. He says, Christians are no different from the rest, uh, from the rest of their nationality, language, and customs. They live in their own countries, but as sojourners. They fulfill all their duties as citizens, but they suffer as foreigners. They find their homeland wherever they are, but their homeland is not in any one place. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey all laws, but they live at a level higher than than that required by law. They love all, but are persecuted by all. What if that's how we approached our culture? What if that's how we went out to function? And what if we sat back and rather than saying we are entitled to all of these things and they're getting worse, we looked forward and said, how can we love the country around us? Now, listen. This is not a pacifist sermon. I am not a pacifist, okay? I am not sitting back. This is not an anti-government sermon. I'm not saying don't vote. Vote. I support groups that legislate and push for different moralities in different areas. I support those groups. What I'm saying is that a lot of times we've become so frightened by the culture around us that we have withdrawn and we are starting to look like a Christian commune that has no ability to connect to the culture around us that is in desperate need of love and not just any love but virtuous love Christ-like love. Our, our culture is screaming out, will you just listen to me without trying to correct me? Will you love me without trying to change me? Who changes human hearts? That's right. Humans do not. Like I said, no one gets corrected into the kingdom. 
This is what I think it looks like. And with this, we'll close and I'll pray. I think for Christians to live these things out, challenging as they are, uncomfortable as we are, I think it looks like Christians living out their faith in virtuous and radical ways to the glory of Christ and to the benefit of all who encounter them. I think that is what it looks like for us to go and virtuously love, understand, discern, and be unified with each other in a culture that is becoming more and more hostile to people of faith. Let me pray for us. So Lord, right now, I just lift up every heart in this room. I lift up every person who will hear this online. Lord, I just pray for them right now as these are challenging words. These grind on our comfort levels. Lord, I just pray that every single person would feel a great freedom, not to take these as mandates, but to take these questions, to take these challenges into their life and discern them with you. That they would sit back and ask, what relationships can I apply virtuous love in? Some of us being called to different places to minister and to care. Oh, Lord, I just, Holy Spirit, would, would you move greatly in each of our lives as we discern what to do with this? Would you stir us in deep ways? Would you take us uh, to places where you know will be challenging for us that it, it will continue to make us look more like you? Will you protect us in areas where we're going to feel too much challenge? That we're not going to take the entire culture. We're not going to press in on everything. We're simply going to go where you've called us in each season and accept the challenges for the day, not for the next year, 10 years, or anything like that. We're going to stay in our day and love the world around us. And we know that if we do that, you will perfectly supply for us because your mercies are new every day. Lord, I pray for the venue. I pray for Scottsdale Bible Church as we learn to embrace, not, not to agree with, not to change our beliefs, but despite what we believe, to love. Lord, you've put on my heart over and over again that if I were to interact with someone for a while, they would be surprised with what I believe because of how extravagantly I've loved. They would be shocked to find that I don't agree with them in some of these areas because I have so closely modeled your extravagant love to them that they would be deeply moved and that they would see that as a reflection of your face. Uh, Lord, I lift these things up and just thank you uh, for what you're doing in our midst. And pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, hey, as always, uh, we love you guys. If you have questions, if you want to pray, uh, I'll be up here. Uh, and we love you. We'll see you next week.